Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Welcome. Welcome back. Hello, buddy. Hello. How are you? I'm okay. We have allergies. <laughs> we do. So this forgive the, the sneezes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're joined today by Bart Herridge, another one of my brothers from another mother. I have a couple of these. Bart, um, tell us uh, tell us how we should think about you in terms of your job these days. <laughs> um, I am currently the Dean of Student Engagement and Retention at uh, Abilene Christian University, working in student life. I've been there for about seven years. At the end of October, I'll be transitioning into something else that I'm not entirely sure what that's going to be yet. Um, but I'm excited about some next steps uh, and, and excited about what those opportunities might be. Prior to being in student life, I was in the registrar's office uh, here at ACU for about eight years, and I worked uh, for a while in admissions. All of my career at this point in higher education uh, has been focused in uh, basically student-centered higher education, admissions, registrar, academic side, and then student life. It's it's funny. You know, I did my Ph.D. in higher education research, and uh, there were so many times when I'd be sitting in class thinking, I'm learning probably what Bart already knows, <laughs> because it doesn't matter what facet of the university you're talking about. You've had experience and and challenge you've already experienced the challenges we're we're trying to understand on the on the ground um and i think a lot i think a lot of um a lot of your experience not just your heart not just uh your faith but also your experience will play into the discussion we have today so i'm really excited you're here and thankful that you came um before we start cole let's rehearse our three tenets Tenets. How about sacred cows make great barbecue? Delicious. We how, will scoff at orthodoxy whenever we please. How about proudly let your flag fly? That's right. We'll argue vigorously for our opinions uh, until we find it's no longer useful to do so. Right. And finally, we are bros before politicos. That's right. And I, that's the most important one. I always feel like saying let your freak flag fly because that's how I've always heard hey. that. Hey. So. I'd like to ask Bart before we go on so that our listeners may understand what does a retention officer do at hmm. a university? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, I asked that question when I, when <laughs> I took job. this job right. um, and got a variety of answers depending mm-hmm. on who you talk to. Uh, so one of the things that uh, seven years ago I started figuring out when I got into this role was uh, we as a university, and I think this has progressed pretty heavily in the last 10 years at most places in higher ed that are very student-focused and particularly institutions that are tuition-driven, there's a recognition that it's easier to keep people than it is to bring new ones in. Mm. And so the job of the retention officer used to be, hey, let's go find those people who we've heard through the grapevine might be leaving or who have actually told us are leaving and try to talk them out of that thing. Uh, what we've tried to shift over the last 10 years or so has been a much more proactive approach to that, which is let's try to put things in place to stop people from getting to the place that they have to leave. And one of the things that has, that has really begun to shift within uh, enrollment management theory and the industry as a whole is this idea that all problems are academic for students. There used to be the very strong concept, and there are still institutions that do it this way, and if you were one of those institutions and you would like me to come consult on your campus, then mm-hmm. Scott will put my email in the show notes. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> in reality, um, there still is a sense that if we can just if if we can stop students from failing out, we'll solve their problems. And and what the the shift is now much more towards a, a, an inverted, almost like a Maslow type pyramid, where the bottom is personal and social issues, mm-hmm. the second tier is academic major financial issues and then the top tier is okay now we can get you registered for classes and so student you know the 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 retention phrase that i have used and i know both of you have heard me say this probably a number of times is there's a significant population of students on every college campus that is one busted transmission away from dropping out of college Mm -hmm. and for most of us that's a crazy thing to say, mm-hmm. right? That's a that's a concept that's like you have a busted transmission, you take your car to the shop and you get it fixed and that's the way that works. 
and there is a population of students on every college campus, virtually every college campus, for whom that's a reality. Mm. My transmission dies, and I am do not have the resources or the systems in place to help me successfully navigate that in addition to maintaining my academic pursuits at the same time. So a retention officer in 2019 is hopefully looking at a couple of different things, one of which would be who are students that are on our campus that are in that vulnerable situation? And then secondly, what are the systems that we have in our campus that are barriers to those students being successful? And then thirdly, what are the resources that we can pull together from all of these different academic silos that we love to create in higher education? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do we get those resources to the students that need them? I That's two, the summary. Two quick follow-ups. Okay. Uh, the university where I attended and got my undergraduate degree they had um, a social club system that is very popular, and they were criticized by many other universities because they encouraged first semester freshmen to join clubs. And what they always said was the number one reason that a student will leave a university is that he or she does not feel connected. And I wonder if. Have financial concerns surpassed that now, or would you say that's still the top reason that students leave? So what's interesting about the why students leave question (laughs) is research is really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, For one thing, sending a survey to a student who's just left your university, hey, can you fill this out and tell us why you're not here? You don't always get results, and even if you do get results, what are the good results? Um, so one of the things that we have have looked at from a research perspective is to essentially say to students that are sort of at risk of leaving, what are the things that would push you to leave? Mm, mm. Um, and I think finances are always at the top of that list. And I know the institution you attended was private. I think for private schools, that's always the top of the heap. Um, but it's never just money. Mm. It's, it's never, never just, just academics. That's right. It's like this, it's like you set up this um, um, immaculate Rube Goldberg machine and that any number of things can start it rolling. And it's really hard to figure out how to stop it rolling when we talk about, you know, stopping out and the, and the processes that kind of unfold. It's it's really it's, uh, you know, any one thing. It can be financial. It can be isolation. It can be um, it can be academic, but to, to imagine that it's only finance or that it's only academic really doesn't take student development into, into full focus. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's almost never one answer, and it is, and part of the answer is almost always financial because at the end of the day, a student who is isolated and at a private institution that is middle to expensive doesn't have the value – and right. so they are choosing to not pay for that experience right. when they could have an isolated experience at a state that's school right. with 60,000 of their closest friends. I could be lonely somewhere else for right. a lot less money. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's sad but true. Um, interesting. When and it, often it costs more money to join certain things. There are dues and there are for an isolated person to get connected. It, yeah, it's uh, – you know, and, and that's, part of the, that's part of the systems conversation – is, is really about, okay, have you designed something that is specifically for one group of people, extroverts? You know, college is an experience in some ways that is that, that caters to an extroverted personality, yeah. particularly at, at smaller private schools where everybody kind of knows everybody and there's no great deals of privacy and everybody kind of knows what everybody's doing. Um, at larger schools... People who are not extroverts, real honest introverts can kind of blend in and find comfort spaces and find small groups of people that they connect to. And that's harder sometimes um, at the smaller the institution, the more difficult that becomes. And so things like that, money is some of those barriers as well. Social clubs have dues. Some of our student organizations don't, and that's on purpose. But it's also inherent on people to go find those things. And sometimes that's difficult especially for people who are first generation or don't navigate the systems well and are trying to figure out how to do that in general. They're not used to going and finding out things. Right. They are used to a system in a public high school where they are presented a set of opportunities right. and they can choose or not choose those opportunities. Yeah. The second thing I was wanting to mention in relation to your, the way you described your job is I know of a private university that's small-ish where at their first-year orientation great big meeting 
Um, they have they have a university president who's very hands on and among the students and helping them move in. They at this assembly they have the students say out loud with their hands raised, "I promise to talk to President X before I ever decide to leave this mm. university." I mean, they are serious about yeah. it because they. And I wonder if that works, you know, or if it's just so much showmanship. I wonder if that actually works. But that's an interesting idea. Sure. For the president to say, if you decide you don't like it here, that's fine, but come talk to me first. Yeah. It is It is a signal that you belong here and that, you know. And we want you to it, belong It is here. a signal of community right. Yeah. building. Right. Okay. Thanks for letting me ask. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about then, um, if we're talking about students who are isolated, um, what is the uh, – this is a loaded question, but what is the the situation for a student of color, you know, particularly on a predominantly white institution campus, you know, a PWI campus where students of color um, come onto the uh, come onto the campus, um, they they are trying to establish uh, some community, trying to access resources. Um, I mean, I know what the literature says, but kind of talk to us about the real life experience of a student of color. Okay. Um, so I, I think um, I'll speak to the campus that I'm working mm-hmm. at because that's the that's the set of experiences I have. There's a lot of research out there on this for a lot of different types of institutions. Um, the one thing that um, that is interesting to me in this conversation um, is really this idea of there are groups of students who all behave certain ways. And we all know in all the roles that we fill, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. There is not a blanket, this student has this set of demographics and therefore this is going to be their right. experience. And so right. that's one thing that I, I kind of want to couch this entire conversation in that concept as a very beginning because you will have students of color who have been raised in a largely white culture and come to ACU and are completely comfortable in this place. You will have other students who might even be white students who were not raised in a particularly white culture who come to ACU and are incredibly uncomfortable here and and have to really maneuver to find pockets where they can fit and belong. And so we're going to we're going to talk about some things in probably some broad brush strokes today. And with the understanding that data is not people and people are not data. Yeah, that's helpful. There are integrations of those things, and there are certainly broad conversations that you can have. But but there is a very individual nature to the, this entire conversation that I just I have to note because I think it's important to mm. to the way to mm. the way that plays out for individual students. Right. So do I. <laughs> Um, so does Scott, yes. I think, yeah, and I, I think everybody who thinks about this on a daily basis and works in this area recognizes that and understands it. But I also think, you know, when you start talking about research, it's, it's again, you're trying to assimilate groups of individuals into something common, and that's great, and it doesn't necessarily help the student that you meet with two days ago who had a completely different set of problems than another right. student who might not demographically profile in the same way. So anyway, all of that to say... Um, I think when you start the, the, the students of color conversation on, on the campus that I'm working at is really an interesting one because of the shifts just in the last 10 years. Uh, when you go back 10 years ago, this was a campus that was, um, you know, 60% mm-hmm. one specific religious denomination, Church of Christ, uh, was probably 20, maybe 25% in any particular year, students of color, including international students and anybody else that you might count as not domestic mm-hmm. U.S. white. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that you know, it was a fairly homogenous campus in that way. Yeah. And then you fast forward 10 years, the students coming out of a Church of Christ background are 30%. The students who identify as some student of color is probably in the 40% range. Yeah. You know, we're in the the group of, of uh, tier right below the Hispanic-serving institutions, you have to be, I think it's 25% to be considered a Hispanic-serving institution, and we're at about 17 right now, which means we're in one of the emerging category for being a Hispanic-serving institution, which ideally, moving to that threshold was that would open up some federal grant dollars for other programs and things mm-hmm. that we could do to help serve those students better on the campus. And so 
The experience here is different, and what hasn't kept up with that is the profile of the faculty and the staff and the board members. That is still very much very different than the population of the students. And so students come to our campus and they, are, they see more students that look like them, and they don't see a lot of other people from mm-hmm. the faculty and staff side that look like them or board members or alumni or any of those groups. And so over time, obviously, as those students move through and graduate, that begins to change over time. But that makes for what can be a disconcerting environment um, on the front end for some of those students to be here and understand that they are not, they are coming from a culture that's different than this. They are assimilating into this culture and that there are some things that they will adapt to as that process goes forward. I, I think you've hit on something that I, that, um, this starts to be this starts to bear out in the research. I mean, beyond the students' own experience, but this um, this question of whether campuses are sufficiently diverse within the within the faculty, within the uh, staff and admin. Um, and it's interesting the way that this plays out. Mostly, I mean, the the research at the at the work level is more in the business area, not so much in higher ed. Um, there, there's some qualitative work in higher ed, but. In the in the context of just leadership or the the business context, um, there's some, there's a really interesting kind of paradigm that's unfolding in the literature. That you know there is there's actually three groups of there are three categories of diversity. One category is homogenous, right, where you have a homogeneous group of people uh, who tend to tend to look the same or come from the same socioeconomic um, status. And then uh, there, the next layer is the what what's oftentimes referred to as pluralist, which is that we have uh, many different uh, races or socioeconomic status or other uh, designators of diversity represented, but that that is a different thing than integration, right? And so that there are actually three layers. And there can be a – the thing about diversity is it's something that is measurable, and it's easy to measure. And so it's easy to assume that the measurement is in and of itself meaningful. Right. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, Krobot and Aramovich, is, uh, they, they did a fascinating study where they kind of looked at some of the environmental factors um, that play in. And it turns out environment is as much an issue of whether um, – and in fact, they looked at instances where there was uh, equal distribution – of uh, or, or equal r- racial representation across the entire hierarchy of, of three companies. But in two of the company's cases, all of the historic marginalization uh, practices were still on display. It's because they hadn't attended to some other environmental factors that also need to be considered. So being pluralist or being diverse may not be a virtue in and of itself, right? That whether we're uh, thinking about um, kind of the the integration or bringing bringing people together that's a very different conversation than changing the numbers and yet we end up measuring it by the numbers don't well, we I, I heard a great quote earlier just a couple of months ago from a, a friend who works at another university and part of their pre-session this year was devoted to a conversation about diversity and inclusion and the the I'm not going to quote it directly because I won't remember the specific details but paraphrasing it's essentially this idea of diversity being a measurement. Mm-hmm. Diversity is you are what you are. You mm-hmm. are as diverse as you are. Inclusion becomes the actionable pieces of that. And so diversity actually is a measurement where your goals and your activity are, are pushing towards inclusion because inclusion is what allows you to be more diverse if that is your goal. And so – this idea of we want to increase diversity. Okay, so how do you do that? What's the purpose for that? Generally, I think what you hear and see is, well, we need to do that because it's a good thing to do, but there's not necessarily an understanding or even preparation for what that means on the back end. Um, In the case of my university, I can very much tell you we were not prepared for the increase in students whose parents didn't speak English, for example. Right. Um, I remember very specifically walking around after one of an orientation session in the summer, and I walked past a group of parents who were sitting outside of our campus center, and there were at least six or eight families there who were speaking Spanish. They may have been bilingual. I don't know. But I can also tell you at that time, we didn't have anybody in student life who was a Spanish speaker. 
Interesting. And I'm sitting there in my head, walking down this stairwell, listening to all of this and thinking, we're in trouble. Right. Because these parents are going to call us asking questions about things or trying to understand things. And if they are not bilingual or, or even if they are, but have some fairly rudimentary skills in English, we're going to have a very difficult time communicating what's happening and what's going on with their students. And so um, we were just, we were not prepared for that. And particularly, you know, now 2019, as we look at the demographic shift that's happening in Texas and particularly in West Texas and particularly in the center of Texas, Mm -hmm. um, this is the norm. This is where we're headed. And schools, Universities, businesses, everybody, if you're not prepared for those types of influxes and you are thinking about, hey, this is great to have all these diverse people here and you're not really prepared for what the implications of that might be, that's going to be difficult. That creates culture challenges for your for your institution or business to continue to do what you're trying to do. Sure. It's, it's, a, it's a quandary because from an institutional level – Getting a faculty member, let's just use a faculty member as the example, It's probably the hardest person to hire on a campus um, because you've got to find a person who has a specific yeah. set of credentials in a specific area and who can do maybe even within that, you know, within, let's say, English. We don't just need an English professor. We need somebody who knows major British writers or somebody who can teach modern literature so it's not just English. We're looking for some very specialties because we're trying to fit skill sets around. And oh, by the way, I'd also like for that person to be a person of color. And oh, by the way, if they're bilingual, that's fantastic. Yeah. And that pool of people is And then very, you're at religious institutions. Oh, by the way, they need to sign this confession of right. faith or, or be a member of such right. and such a church. It starts – the pool gets very, very small. Right. Absolutely. And then – you're faced with the quandary of do I hire somebody because they fit this profile that we need, even though we're not even sure they're a great teacher, or do we hire someone who we know is a good teacher, but they don't fit this profile, and then we're continuing to reinforce the things that we've always reinforced. Right. And so I, I wish I had answers to all of that. you know. And I'm also struck in the moment by the concept of us three white guys who are all affiliated with the university sitting around talking about diversity and how and, and part of the conversation has to be um, where your dominant culture, white culture, has to be aware of where the systems are problematic on a campus. You have to start that conversation. It, it, you can't just be, hey, we're talking to the black students about diversity. We're talking to our Hispanic students about diversity. That's not where your issues are happening. Your issues are happening in the integration of all of these cultures and all of these people together. Yeah. And that's the place you have to start. So, Okay. Okay. So, sacred cows make great barbecue. Are you ready? I'm ready. So, I wonder, um, is, so far our discussion has been diversity as a good. We're, the assumption has been all the way through the conversation thus far is that diversity is always a benefit. Right? The more diverse we are, the better we are. Even the way I couched the three layers in the research earlier said it made it sound like, you know, homogeneous, bad, pluralist, a little better, integrated, best, right? So I even presented it in a hierarchy. But I think that that's a relatively new technology of thought. When we look historically, evolutionarily speaking, um, we... We tended to tribe up, we probably still do, at a, at a biological level, right? Um, there are some, this is speculative, but there are some who suggest that maybe this is a, a necessary impulse, a survival impulse, to find my tribe, to find the people who are like me, to identify threats. You know, you, you and I love Hawaiian culture so much, or Polynesian culture. This is what all the war hulas are about, is... You know, when you're a Maori standing on the beach, you know, and somebody strange comes, you want to make sure that those um, s- dark spiritual forces don't don't uh, disrupt your people. You've got to stand up, and you've got to you've got to incite fear in this potential enemy. Our listeners can't see you point at me <laughs> when you say we. Yeah, Scott's talking to me about our love for Pacific yes. Island yes. culture. Okay. So I have a great example of this that I'll share with you. And it came up several years ago when there was a conversation about social clubs. Cole mentioned those uh, earlier. Uh, Social clubs on some of the private Christian colleges are essentially local versions of fraternities and sororities. Um, 
They tend to be male or female, so they're not mixed gender like you might have other student organizations or service fraternities and that kind of thing. And so uh, at my campus, we have male and female social clubs, and there was a, a whole conversation several years ago about social clubs on our campus and how white they are, which is true. Mm-hmm. And the conversation is how do we get more students involved and integrated into the social clubs? And focus groups and surveys and conversations and the end result of that was a new social club being formed that was essentially a predominantly black male social club. And the predominant pledges that went into that were black men. Okay. And we do have a few males who are of color who pledge some of the other social clubs, but for the most part, they are still pretty close to as white mm-hmm. as they were when we had this conversation probably six years ago is okay. the time frame that that happened. And so that's the quandary is do you force integration by saying, okay, we, we're not going to have – like you're not going to do that, right? You're not going to say you can't have this social club and we're not going to allow people to choose. We're going to put everybody through our own sorting hat and we're going to put everybody where we want. Okay? Right. That's, that's not from a developmental model – If you're thinking about student development, that's a terrible way to go, right? So then your other option is to figure out how to make your existing social clubs more appealing to students of color. What does that look like when they are social clubs that are essentially self-governing? We try to allow those groups to be self-governing. And so I don't think any of them are intentionally saying to students of color, we don't want you. But the students of color are not – tend to, again – Right. Brushes, with exceptions. Naturally congregating together because that's who they want to be with. And so we talk about this in very either or terms. Mm-hmm. I'd like to offer additional examples. Please. For years, ACU has had a student association and they have a student government and they they have elections to represent the needs of the students, et cetera, et cetera. And several years ago, the international student association said we would like to be separate from the student association because we're international students and several years later there was an african student association who said neither the standard student association nor the international is good enough for what we want to do or is appropriate for what we want to do we want yet a further um i'll use the term elite or uh, separate. Uh, we want a further separation. A so more we, specific designation. A more specific for designation. For advocacy for their group. So we can have an – I don't know that it was all about advocacy. I think – that's what I'm wondering. It seems to me that people tend to tribe up in ways that they feel make them comfortable and get their um, uh, get their goals and objectives met and advocate and what have you. And so it's not just social clubs. It's also – in the student body in other more formal ways. Sure. And that is that is an interesting thing to put in the middle of the table. Mm-hmm. It, it is. And for a, for a higher education administrator, you know, it, where, where you are trying to find balance between – so if you, if, you, if you believe that diversity is good generally, which I would say I, I land in that space. I would mm-hmm. say the more people – you know, the, the Mark Twain quote, travel is often fatal to prejudice, right? So the more that you are exposed to cultures that are not your own, the least preju- prejudicial we tend to be and the more educated we are about the world as a whole. I think that's generally, I would put that in the good camp, right? But as a person who also believes very strongly in student development, I also believe that students need and need to have space to make mistakes and to do things that are dumb, Mm-hmm. Within boundaries, obviously, mm-hmm. but making mistakes in this developmental age of um, – uh, what's the term? Um, emergent, uh, emerging adulthood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the place to make mistakes and this is the place to learn things. And so forcing integration does not hold with the student development model, but completely allowing all of those things to happen completely naturally and not pushing people – into uh, better connection with cultures and people outside of their own is also not helping them see the world more differently and more broadly, which 
last I checked, is the goal of university education generally. Yeah, well, I don't think we've come to, as a culture, I don't think we've come to terms yet with the fact that when the hegemony, uh, the, the, the group in power um, are homogeneous, that we recognize that as a problem. When the marginalized, I know, I, I want to be careful when, because that's a loaded term. But when the marginalized are um, more homogenous, we we tend to say that's fine, right? I'm cool with that, but that is a that's a thing. I don't think we've come to a reconciliation with as a culture, as a people. Um, I'm I'm saying in American culture, I don't think we've come to a recognition that we parse out. Um, we think about diversity different, depend, differently depending upon where the diversity is happening. Right? We don't say what a shame that HBCUs are not more diverse. That's right. And so that's why – that's kind of where I want to go is I am a person who likes to examine arguments. And if we say that it's good for people to be exposed to other cultures, then why aren't we at the HBCUs saying what you're doing is not developmental for your students? Right? So I, I – Bart has said – he thinks that diversity is in itself a good. And I think that's what we're trying to put on the table because mm-hmm. sure. I'm not sure that any type of manufactured diversity or top-down designed systematic attempts at diversity um, are, are helpful. And I am a child of integration. Um, I was put on a bus in junior high school and traveled 30 minutes to – a small rural school so that there could be half African-American and half white while other kids were bused to other schools, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder to what degree it made people like each other better, you know. It could be that it did exactly what it was supposed to, to say kids are not yet as prejudiced as adults, and so maybe they will learn to like their friends of different ethnic backgrounds differently. Um, but I, I question uh, whether top-down attempts at systematic um, execution of diverse plans works, which is, you know, when you said a moment ago, we wanted to have more diversity in the clubs. Okay, well, a, a club of African-American men. And from what I can see on this campus, they're doing very well. People love being in the club. They do great things. They have goals and objectives that they're meeting. And so uh, – did that serve the goal? Yeah, exactly. Did it serve the goal that we have outlined for right. a goal of diversity? And, or, and or, was it the right goal to begin yeah, with? Yeah. So one of the things, and you've brought the business side of this in several times, Scott, mm-hmm. one of the things that's interesting and, and one of the places where you can really, um, I guess, ferret out what people think about this type of topic is when you start talking about affirmative action right. as a hiring practice. And I've said for many, many years, I'm completely opposed to affirmative action until we come up with something better. It's terrible. I don't like it. And it's the best thing that we have because generally people are way more comfortable hiring people that look like them Mm -hmm. and think like them and come from their background. And at the very least, there is a construct, terrible, artificial, but there is a construct there to at least force people to think about that differently. Not necessarily. And again, when you start talking about the quotas and all those other things, you can argue that's good or bad or whatever. But having a system to at least push people to think about that differently, I think, is a positive thing. And so and the reason I would say that is where where you have seen instances of people who are who are in the forced integration like you're talking about, you know, where where you saw, you know, people, the state police leading students into the University of Mississippi in the Mm -hmm. 60s. Man, that is one of the, like, now you can look back at that 40 years later and say, hey, that was good. For the students that were in the middle of that scenario, that was traumatic. Mm. That was deeply traumatic for those people and for everybody around. See, this is the, Robert and Van Dyck did a study where they were kind of, it's a um, kind of a, a systematic literature review of, um, diversity literature, specifically in the context of business, um, one of their findings was that it really, it really comes down to when are you measuring this? Because if you measure it at the moment that it's happening, usually the outcomes are not very good. You have to, you have to have 
measured it with more time for some of the uh, what the social categorization processes kind of work themselves out. Yeah, but I think Bart's even adding another dimension to it, which is, was it worth the trauma that those kids suffered for the next several years for us to sit here and say it was worth it back then? Right. That's yeah. a whole other layer. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're Monday morning quarterbacking a situation <laughs> that, that you weren't a part of. Yeah. And so now, like I say, right. I would look at that, and I, I lived in Mississippi for a couple of years, and there were a lot of people who had stories about that time that I heard and hearing the stories that people were telling was was a very different spin on that than what I read in my history books growing up, right? It was a very difficult – Oh, yeah. It was a very, very difficult and very tense time to be there. I think, you know, the, the, the long view of all of this is saying we're a better country because some of those people stood in those gaps to do those things. We're, you know, Rosa Parks is a hero because she did something – and put a stake in the ground on something that that we would all say was unjust. Mm -hmm. But as you get farther away from things that appear to be categorically unjust and more into, hey, we just want to increase your idea of what diversity is, that becomes a more nuanced and granular conversation that we get very uncomfortable with very quickly. It does. And it's so easy to to then retract into the measurements because because, again, it's so easy to measure diversity rather than outcomes or rather than people's experience obviously that's tough to measure so one of the things that's interesting about this if i can throw a curveball and a little bit maybe even you can love it. go for it throw curveballs so i think um <laughs> i think one of the things i don't i don't know if this is unique to higher ed or not i, I don't think so um one of the things that's happening nationally on college campuses is, you know, ACU in particular, we're about 60% female in our student body now. Um, we are coming from a faith tradition that is very, very grounded in, I'm going to use a loaded term here and I'm expecting glares, but I, I'm, is very grounded in the patriarchy. Right. You're only getting glares from one of them. Right, right, right. Of I'm not glaring at all. <laughs> I just listen to um, And so when you look at, again, it's the same issue. When you look at leadership, when you look at who is represented in decision-making, we have a group that's making decisions for a student body that is not just a little bit mm-hmm. more one gender than the other. It's 60-40 is a pretty significant mm-hmm. split. And those... And our female students are retaining at higher rates than Mm -hmm. males. And our female students are academically performing Mm -hmm. better than males. And so, but everybody, just about everybody. Going to grad school more often. Yeah, yeah. And and so just, but just about everybody in in decision-making positions Mm -hmm. is male. And so one of the things that I've wondered for several years is, you know, there's been one theory that, well, this is great because now we're going to see more women in leadership positions in higher education. And that is starting to come into play, I think the other thing that is going to come out of that is going to be a decrease in the value of college education because the males who are not getting college degrees, and again, we are still a fairly patriarchal culture, even outside of higher education and even outside of West Texas. Now, if you have males who are in those positions who do not have college degrees, who are still being successful or who are still viewed in certain roles but didn't get college degrees, now all of a sudden you have this idea that, well, maybe higher education doesn't matter as much after all because men aren't doing that. I think that happened in um, tech education. Oh, I thought you were going to say tech. Because so many it absolutely did. Went yeah, out of, did not go to college and went straight to tech and gotcha. develops hardware, software, and right. technology. Yeah, everybody wants to use Steve Jobs and Michael Dell and all of those people as examples yeah. for why you don't need to go to college when that's the one half of one percent and, and the best path to success in terms of yeah. That we're actually talking about two sides of the same coin. I think in terms of education, one of the things that happened is it became women's work. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm talking K through twelve became women's work. Um, so you're suggesting that the college enterprise as an industry will start to lose value the more that men succeed outside of it? Is that kind of a service? I think that is a possibility. Okay. I think that is a possibility. And I think – I also think that the idea and, – and I think this is particularly true for religiously affiliated 
college campuses that have been grounded in a faith tradition that has been patriarchally dominated has been we don't consider gender diversity as part of the diversity equation. We started out this entire conversation talking about race sure. and ethnicity. That's fair. And the idea that gender is part of this equation is absolutely true. And I one of the interesting things that I think has been an interesting enterprise for me over the last couple of years is to have some conversations with several um, several women who are in leadership positions on higher education campuses. And I, I just started asking people, tell me about your experiences. And the things that you hear are amazing and terrible and not intentional, but certainly the types of things that you hear where there is very clear places where value is placed, where that same value is not given to, to females in those roles. And so the standards are just different. Let me make sure I understand what you said just now. Mm-hmm. Do you mean that value is not handed down by the university to females or that value to the females roles are not ascribed to them by the people who serve under them? Um, so let me give you an example. Okay. Um, so I, one of the conversations that I had with um, a female administrator on a, on a college campus, and it's an evangelical campus where there's a lot of praying going on. During what? Praying. Praying, okay. Before meeting, sometimes we'll have a staff meeting and we'll pray before a staff meeting or something like that. Uh, and this is a faith tradition that is, again, very, has been very male-dominated, as most of our evangelical traditions mm-hmm. have been. Um, and so the beginning of a meeting, whoever's running the department might say to a male, will you pray for us? Or Scott's going to pray for us today without maybe even having that conversation beforehand. There's just an assumption that Scott is both A, willing, and B, able to do that because you're coming out of a faith tradition where that's a thing. If there is a circumstance and if there is comfort level to ask a female to pray in that same circumstance, the person might say, we're going to ask Jennifer to pray for us or Jennifer, would you be comfortable praying for us today? Right. So that seems like a good thing, right? That seems like you are asking this person if they are comfortable doing that. But even the difference in the way that that's stated signal gender roles assigns value. And so we have not addressed that. And I think that's particularly true at our evangelical religious colleges. We have not addressed how those things denote value in the same ways. And it is so much a part of some of our DNA And I think that's why when we start talking diversity, we immediately think about the race conversation and we don't think about a gender conversation that is already overwhelming us. We are already 60% female in our student body and don't have leadership and representation that, that, that represents that fairly and correctly. Okay. I'm going to throw a curveball now, except it's going to take me a long time to wind up. And then I think I'll just sit back and let y'all talk to me. Okay. Okay. Um, Bart, you, the, some of the ways that you have been phrasing things, I think, holds some warrants in a syllogistic reasoning way that I want to throw light on and see if if you agree that what we're saying is true and if you think they are good. All right. So I'll, I will start with spe- specificity and move outward. Several years ago, I was in a position to – um, be on a hiring committee and and try to get a faculty member in to a department. And someone of influence said to me, hey, I think it's important that we try to get um, a diverse candidate. So I want to talk about already how problematic that term is because what that person meant was a non-white faculty member, but all that person said was diverse. Non-white male. Right. Well... Yes, a non yeah. a non white non male. Right. Yeah. And so, I said to the person, "That is not my plan. My plan is to hire the best candidate." And every part of what I mean by best candidate is an examination of dissertation topic, academic progress, co- comprehensive exam areas. Um, preparation at many levels, recommendation letters, etc. If I do that for each faculty hire that comes open, and if I have taken 
care to solicit applications from whomever would like to solicit applications, then I, I wonder if that is not sufficient. If that yields a department then of 20 faculty members who are all American Indian women or all Pacific Islanders or all white men, if we've taken the care to examine academic preparation, then I think the public would still say, and that you, Bart, would still say, if it yields one ethnic background set, it has still, still failed because the students who sit in classes need to see themselves represented in the faculty. And I, I've heard this argument many times. Mm -hmm. If we are 18% African-American student body, then we should try to approach 18% African-American in the, in the faculty. And I don't understand that argument, and I'll tell you why. I had many wonderful teachers who were white males. I had many lousy teachers who were white males. I had many wonderful teachers who were African-American women, African-American men, Hispanic men and women, many different ones. And I had lousy teachers of all ethnic backgrounds as well. So I don't – I think people would probably say this is because I'm blind to my whiteness. But I don't understand the argument that a student with an ex XYZ ethnic background needs to see XYZ in the faculty or the student will be unable to learn well. The end <laughs> of my curveball. So please respond, both of you. I think you're having conversations with people who haven't thought about it deeply enough. Okay. Um, because, look, you know, having an all-white male faculty can happen on accident. Having an all- Native American female faculty is likely not going to happen on accident. My point being that we do tribe up and we do tend to tribe up, uh, you know, in in connection with the hegemony. What do you mean? We tend to tribe up with connection to the hegemony. Well, the power structure, uh, the, if the power structure is there uh, that reinforces white maleness or advances white maleness, then you can accidentally end up with a white male faculty. I think the question of whether the students see themselves in the faculty is, A, it's driven by qualitative research where students have claimed that this is what they desire. I'm not sure that we've carefully enough unpacked the warrants that the students are expressing. I think the students smell something is rotten, and that's what they're reacting to. Or they may have been told that things are rotten. They also may smell that things are rotten. Yes, you, right? either of those two things my, might, uh, might uh, obtain. My point being, if I walk into a church, let's take it away from higher education let's. for a second. If I walk into a church, and that church is all upper middle class white people, I'm not saying that it is rotten. I'm suspicious. And the reason I'm suspicious is... Your community is not all upper middle class. Your community is not all white. So why is your church community? One of the answers could be because people care to worship with people like Fine, themselves. Fine, but I'm asking the question. I'm not telling you what the answer is. I'm asking the question. Right, but my point is I don't know that you should smell something fishy just because the question comes to your mind. Because it could be that people prefer certain worship styles that are associated with similar backgrounds. And it, that doesn't mean that people say, don't come to my church if you don't look like me. It could be something as why, innocuous. Why aren't we adjusting our worship styles to be more welcoming? That's my question. Well, you're assuming then that diversity is always good. I am. With uh, that. Yeah. And I am. That's what I'm putting yeah. on the table. Yeah. Because people, you know, people have said. Now I'm no longer looking at Bart. Uh, people have said that Sunday morning is the most segregated, segregated hour. hour in of the week, and isn't that awful? Well, you can agree. You can agree with A, but still not think it's awful unless churches are saying, "Don't come here if you don't look like us." And well, I don't see any church doing that. I'm going to make the argument that it's awful in a little while. Okay. But not yet. So go ahead, Bart. So if you could just admit that no one is standing, no one is saying even 
covertly, you're not welcome in my church if you're if you're a different ethnic background. I don't think that message is in any church I've ever been in. I've seen people throw their arms open to whoever walks in the door and say, you are welcome here if you are of a different ethnic background, but people still tend to go to churches of their similar ethnic backgrounds. Okay. I want to address a couple of things. <laughs> okay. That he's to answer the the questions that you were go, kind of going back to your faculty, okay. mm-hmm. and then I want to come back and address the welcoming thing. Okay. So I'm going to try to keep all this straight That's good, in my head. Because welcoming to do that. is an important part of this Absolutely. whole conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, so one of my side interests throughout my career has been hiring, because I think generally speaking, most people are terrible at it. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time doing research, and I have a business, a couple of business degrees under my belt and spent a lot of time talking and thinking about HR practices and those types of things, and I think hiring is a really big deal. And so in the scenario that you painted earlier, a department chair who's hiring and filling with, I want the best possible person for each one of, for each of the roles that I have here. So I think there's two things I would say that would specifically respond to that. One would be, I think anybody who is hiring, who is trying to find absolutely the, and hear me say, I don't think you were saying this, but I do think this is an example that gets played out when we start talking hypothetically about this conversation. Well, I'm going to hire the best person for every single job. And what you're going to end up with is the best person for every single job who may or may not be able to relate to anybody else on the teams that they have to work with. They may have this incredible, wonderful skill set to do the thing that you've hired them to do and not be able to either get along with, work with, or communicate with other people that they are working with. Because you didn't account for a, a sufficiently wide number of variables. Right. Gotcha. And you And there is a larger team dynamic at play at any work situation, even in the somewhat mm-hmm. isolated life of faculty where everybody being on the same team and moving in a direction is a very important variable in all of that. And so... I guess that's one response that I would have is I would say I hope I actually my thoughts about hiring kind of tend to be generally speaking, I'm probably going to end up with two or three people who could probably do this job really well. They're each going to do it a little bit differently, but they're all going to be in a top tier. One of them might look like they are not quite as good as another person, but they bring something else to the table. So if you hire best every time, the other thing that they bring to the table, maybe that's diversity. Maybe it's they have an administrative, if they're a faculty member, they have some administrative ability that we may be able to use for some other things at some point. Maybe it's, so it doesn't have to be diversity, but it could be other things. Everybody kind of goes into this hiring process like they're trying to find a soulmate. <laughs> and the reality is there are probably lots of people in, in your pool who would yeah. fill that role really well. And this idea that you have to land on the best person that has the best pedigree and the best CV ignores the fact that there might be two or three other people that bring other things to the table that you put out of the process because this person looks like they're the best. There's often not one answer for that, my opinion. Yeah. Secondly, about students seeing uh, people that look like them on campus. And so I too, as I think I've divulged, am coming at this from the diversity is good place. And I think this gets into your church example as well. So integration, segregation is largely part of the conversation we're having, right? This is about how do I, how do I think about cultures that are not my own? Um, I don't know what that feels like for a black student on this campus or other campuses. I don't know what that feels like for a Hispanic student. I know what it feels like for a poor student because I came to college as a coming out of a very poor background and understanding that there were things that I had no idea about and no systems to understand. And the things that were most helpful for me were finding other people who understood my culture. This goes back to the Ruby Payne research, right, mm-hmm. about, yeah. about class cultures. How can you – how do people move between class cultures? The same things are true with racial cultures yes. and gender cultures and, and LGBT cultures. cultures and political cultures and all sorts of those things. And so – the, the, I think there's tons and tons and tons of research, and a lot of it in the higher ed, if you go back to the Tinto and Aston things, right. people need mentors and guides to help them go through things that they don't understand. That's the best way for people to move through those processes. It's not to say that a black student can't have a white faculty member as their mentor. But isn't it saying that? It is. Aren't you in fact saying that? I am saying that it's probably better for a black student to have a black professor leading them through that. Fair. I want to go on record. As saying that is very problematic. 
Sure. I, I would just like to, uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you my opinion. I think they should have an option. They should have choices. I would agree. I should you, be you able mean to. ethnic choices. Gender, ethnic, ethnic ability. Social, we should think in diverse things. ways to where as I, as a student, regardless of my own background, have some option rather than just assuming that, well, this white guy's good enough. If the white guy is not good enough, then the white guy's not good enough. Why can't the option be this guy is an American lit guy, this guy's an accountant, this woman is social work, and you can pick mentors from any of the faculty on this campus, and their ethnic background doesn't enter into it because we're trying to move in a direction where we don't account certain characteristics to certain ethnic backgrounds, where you can have a white mentor if you're a black student or a black mentor if you're white, and the what, what matters is the person's mentoring ability, not his ethnic background. So here's where I'll push back. Okay. Because I want to repeat what I think you just said to okay. make sure that I heard it correctly. All right. So I think what you said is we are trying to move into spaces where essentially ethnic background doesn't matter in an education setting because we have people who are who are well-qualified, well-trained, very capable, who could mentor any student through this process for themselves. I will correct the term doesn't matter to okay. is not collectively assigned qualities. Tell me what that means. All the black faculty on this campus are great mentors for black students where they are not collectively gathered because my whole life has been stop referring to people who are in one ethnic group as certain ways because they are individuals with their own assets. Absolutely. And so that's that's where we're moving. Right. And I think – okay, go ahead. So – to come back around to what you said and to tie in what Scott said too, because I, I, I'm glad I, Bart's here. I think at some level, <laughs> I think you're both right. But the reality is, as a student, as a person, when I look for mentors, I look for people that I connect with. I look for people who have a shared set of experiences with me. I look for somebody who can understand and empathize with where I am and who can help me see the vision to see what's past that. What I think you see in the research from students of color is that they more they more likely or are more frequently finding those people in people that look like them. It is harder for you, Cole, I am pointing at Cole, or Scott for that matter, <laughs> yeah. to relate to an inner city kid from Houston who is black, who came here from a single parent family. Well, yeah, I want to edit that. I don't think it's harder for us to relate to. I think it presents a barrier to the student that the student has not yet developed an ability to uh, uh, to see through yet, right? So <clears throat> that doesn't mean that it's it doesn't mean that you're a bad person because if I'm an African American student, I don't get that you would be a good mentor. What are you laughing about? Because I think I know what you're about to say, and I can't believe you're about to say it. This is a great episode, by the way. <laughs> this is fantastic. You're going to say the student's wrong, but we want to put people on campus. So no, that the wrong student, is not not the, wrong is the not the right is word. Ill developed yet, it's underdeveloped, underdeveloped, and so yeah. it's wrong to developing. Think, it's wrong to think that a black student should have a necessarily black mentor. But since the student doesn't realize it yet, we're gonna we're gonna make sure it can happen. Well, I think you've. Uh, absurdified what I'm coming from. But yes, I'm, I'm kind of there. Okay, all right. I, I don't have an argument. Uh, I don't. I, I, no I want to stop shy of saying Cole is incapable of mentoring a black student. I'm glad because I have mentored several people who are not white, and I and you've done great. Well, thank you. I, I personally know good some of those people. Thank yeah. you. Thank That's you. not the argument. The argument is that, um, especially when we're talking about college students emerging adults they're not fully formed that's our job is to help them fully form go back to the very early part of this conversation when we're talking about the number of barriers that exist for students to continue specifically for students of color to to continue specifically students who are first generation low income and students of color when you start matching these intersectionalities together again there are so many tripwires that are set within the system that just uh, that everything has to go right 
in order for that student to matriculate. So if they're looking for someone who looks like them, why not make sure that's available? I'm not saying that they're right. I'm just asking why not make sure that it's available and let them grow into adulthood with through that experience. Well, from what I was where I saw this conversation going, it was if the best person for a given faculty position ends up presenting a faculty that all looks the same, you have failed. So when you're saying, why not make sure there sure, are people? That. Well, that might yeah. entail hiring people for faculty roles who aren't as, yeah. you, you hear me? Yeah, I hear sure. That. I hear that. That's, that's fair. So I, I go back to my point earlier to say, I've got three people who are candidates for this position. And they're all qualified. And they are all at some level good. And one or two of them bring different things to the table than the person who has all the research and the, the best dissertation and all the things. So, again, options, what's the likelihood? What, how am I presenting options for my students to be most successful, right? What is the likelihood that most of my students can be successful? And if you are at an institution that is as pushing towards 50% diverse – from a minority perspective, having an all-white faculty is not the most likely scenario for all of those people to be successful. I don't believe that's true, and I think there's a lot of research that bears that out. Well, that's a shame. I, so I don't disagree with you, and I think that happens as much on the student side as it is on the faculty member side. I think there are as many students who come here who, who this is their first time really living in a, a purely white culture or an evangelical culture or whatever culture this is for them. And so they are, that's where I think Scott's yeah. point comes into play of them learning how to navigate a culture that they have not been a part of and having mentors and people to guide them. Some of those, and here's the thing, we talk about this like we're matching people with the sorting hat from Harry that's Potter, right? right? No, that's, that's not, not a thing. Point. Yeah. Everybody has multiple mentors. Everybody has multiple people right. that guides them along that path. And some of those people for our students of color are going to be white because there are just so many white people around. And some of them are not because they are going to gravitate towards those people naturally. But if you don't have those people on your campus, there is part of that experience that is missed. I think that um, – and this is not – this is the fault of well-meaning liberals – is that we have tried to make the argument time and time again that the ontology justifies the work. You mean – Say the word consequences, right? That yeah. That in order to, in order to, if if we if we do this, everything is better, and we'll try to prove it by cognitive diversity, or we'll try to prove it by uh, productivity, or we'll try to prove it in the business world by your bottom line. And one of the things I think is fair is to actually ask whether that is justified proof. That's capitalism. That's not necessarily Christianity. And. The reason I think this is important and the reason I think it's important for us to discuss when we're talking about Christians in the public square is, are you willing to do diversity when the outcomes are not good? Mm. Are you willing to do diversity when things go terrible? And in the context of other virtues, we don't assume that honesty is a virtue just because you make more money at it, right? We don't expect that something like kindness or humility always work out. They are virtues, whether the outcomes are good or the outcomes are bad. And one of the things that I think we've done wrong in talking about diversity, or I think a better word for me would be inclusion, but I think one of the things we've done wrong is we've tried to prove that it's always a good because of the ontology, because of the outcome. And I want to suggest to you that, in fact, it's the dialogic, it's working things out, it's going through the process of going through the problems that is in and of itself the value. That's where, that's where it demonstrates itself as a virtue. It doesn't always work out. Inclusion is not hospitality. However you want to talk about this, sometimes you get stepped on. Sometimes it goes uh, very, very wrong. And I, I guess my argument is not that the outcomes are always beneficial, that it always results in student benefit, or that it results in a happier uh, workforce, or that it results in more productivity. To me, those are all capitalist concerns, and I'm not a capitalist. So in the 60s, when ACU said, in fact, we want to start admitting African-American students, even if enrollment would have gone down, it was still the right thing to do. Well, they were forced to do it. But yes, 
if enrollment goes down, it's the right thing to do. If, if students are dumber, it's the right thing to do. Thinking inclusively is always the right thing to do because it's a virtue. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not even saying that we end up measuring an outcome of better diversity. I'm just saying anytime the culture around us in the public square experiences the negative side of hospitality or the negative side of inclusion, that's the place we ought to stand up and say, I'm still going to do it anyway. I'm still going to be honest anyway, when even when it means that I lose or we are people who stand up for honesty, even when it turns out we lose or for humility or kindness when we get stepped on. It's just the way it is that 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 conflict is an endemic part of in engaging with a virtue. I, I absolutely agree. And coming at this from a student development model, the thing that I would say is if we have a student that goes through the university and the first time they have a significant and I'm going to use the word conflict, but I don't even necessarily mean crisis, maybe or, or, or even just a, a, a dialogue where where opposing views can be talked about. I want to take the word conflict out of it. And, okay. and this is, we are having a conversation where opposing views. And, right. <laughs> right. So the first time that they have a conversation about opposing views about race or gender with a person that involves a person of a different race or gender, if they're doing that after college, we have failed. Yep. And if we kick them out while they're engaged in that conflict, we've also failed. I agree. How you like them apples? It's the conflict. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's something that's in the context of Yodia and Syntyche not getting along. Yes, yes. But I just want I just want to say for the record, though, that you are what I think you're doing is saying when a when there are two churches and one is mostly black and one is mostly white and one is over here is mostly Hispanic, that that is necessarily not inclusive. No, and I, I want to see because they don't have necessarily, in my view, anything to work out. Maybe they just prefer to worship at that church. If that's true, then that's fine. If it's true, it's fine. I just want to ask the question, and and I did say something that I don't actually agree with. It doesn't mean that it smells. <laughs> I'm not saying it smells bad because something is rotten. I'm. It's just fishy, and I want to investigate. Okay, it, and right? that gets into the other point that I was going to make a few minutes ago that we're running out of time for, which was welcoming, because I don't think welcoming is the goal. The goal is thriving. The okay. goal is providing places for people to thrive. I can be welcome in a lot of places that I will not thrive. Okay. I, I, so, so if you think about, sure, we're, you can be here. Are you going to be a part of the community? Like you can walk in to a church that is completely African-American and you will probably be welcome there. Is that a place where you will thrive? I don't know. Some people do. I know people who go to historically black churches and are very, and I know white students who go to HBCUs. Right. That's a thing. Right. So it's about, I, 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 welcoming is the word that we've tossed around a lot in our cultures. And I, man, that's a bad goal. Okay. If all we are doing is welcoming people, we have missed the mark, I believe. We should, we should facilitate their flourishing. Yes. And thriving. And sometimes that does mean... I'm going to go over here with the people that I consider to be my people, mm -hmm. and that is a thriving environment for them. And I would say that's fine. But if we are allowing people to not at least see the other sides of those coins, that's where we're getting into a place where we're, you know, you're welcome here, but you're really going to be more comfortable over there. So why don't you just start there and not even understand anything outside of your own bubble? Our guest today has been Bart Harris. And it's been lovely. It has been Thank fantastic. you for coming, buddy. Thank you for spending an hour with us today. Happy to do it. All right. See, see you next time. time. <laughs>